Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. So we have a lot of Torah. 
as always, our Torah is um, balanced and complex and nuanced and trying to navigate competing tensions. You know, I, I once again, I don't believe in Jewish values. People in the traditional Jewish world, people talk about halakha, Jewish law. In the liberal Jewish world, people talk about Jewish values. What I think we're exploring in this 40-part series is not law and not values, but the dialectical tension between them, right? Values that are intention. If you're just an ideologue, I'm a diehard Democrat, a diehard Republican, I'm a diehard Reformed Jew, a diehard Orthodox Jew, okay, you can just hope, you know, celebrate an ide ideology. But if you want to study Judaism, then you have to look at the tension of values rather than just holding up one value over others. And so, so too, we understand judging others favorably to be a value, but also judging for justice to be a value. So here we go. In the Torah, we learn that when we sit in judgment, we should do so, quote, with righteousness. It says in Vayikra, in Leviticus, you should not commit a distortion of justice as a judge in court. You should not favor the poor, nor honor the great. With righteousness, you should judge your fellow, okay, without favoritism or bias. Based on this verse, the Talmud teaches us to be dan lechav schut, to give the benefit of doubt to others. It says here in the Talmud of Shavuot, with righteousness, you must judge your fellow. This means that you should judge your fellow favorably, right? You don't have all the facts, and so give them the benefit of the doubt. Rashi comments here on this Talmudic passage, judge your fellow favorably. This does not refer to judging litigants in court, right? Rather, it refers to someone who observes another person doing an action that could be interpreted as either a wrongdoing or as a neutral act. You should not suspect him of a wrongdoing, rather assume he is innocent. Right, so here we're talking about a, a public action, not a court judgment, Rashi says. For the Sefer HaChinuch, this applies not only in the societal realm, but also in the courtroom, going further than Rashi. His view could be taken as a step beyond the idea of being innocent until proven guilty, as we like to say in America. In his words, in the Chinuch, Mitzvah 235, there is a mitzvah to judge with righteousness, which means treating the litigants fairly and equally. Another aspect of this mitzvah is that it is appropriate to judge another's actions positively, always interpreting other people's actions and words in a favorable way. Oh. So to presume that someone is innocent until proven guilty is to recognize the importance of hamotzi mechavero alav haraya, Literally, someone who wants to take from another, the proof is upon that person, right? If you are going to say this person owes me something, the burden of proof is on you to prove that they owe it to you, right? The person is innocent until proven guilty. That is, someone who wants to prove that someone else is guilty or liable, a plaintiff in a civil case or the prosecution in a civil matter, bears a burden of proof. To view someone's actions always in a positive light 
adds another layer of favorable treatment. For some commentators, there's an interesting intersection between justice and love. Here's what Rav David Kronglass in Sichot Chachma Umusa writes. If one truly loves another as a father loves a son, he will be very naturally, he will very naturally have a positive outlook toward that person. He will see everything that that person does in a positive light and judge him positively, right? The school calls you and says, oh, your son is causing trouble. You say, not my son, right? Thus, the mitzvah of judging positively is really an outgrowth of the mitzvah to love your fellow as yourself. The extent to which one judges others positively is a good indicator of his love for others. Oh, so very interesting. So the issue of judgment is an issue of love. If we are judging people not favorably, it means we haven't properly, uh, uh, properly cultivated love towards them. Now, of course, love is a loaded word. We, and there's many different kinds of love. There's the love of a romantic partner. There's the love of a child for a parent, the love of a parent for a child, the love for a sibling, the love of a friend, the love of a stranger, the love of a neighbor, the love of self, the love of God. These are very different loves, even though we use the same word, ahava, or love. They're radically different emotional states. Uh, Plato divides it into three, but we can, we can do many more. Uh, for this Musar teacher, judging favorably is about loving others. The spiritual shift required here is to move from just observing an action to inspiring oneself to assume that another person's actions are motivated by positive inclinations. Rav Shlomo Volbi taught, someone who judges others favorably really hopes that their fellow man is guiltless. He seeks ways of understanding the other's actions as good. This is the extent to which one must regard another person with a positive attitude and wish to see his actions as issuing from a good source. We should search out another's positive qualities. This is the opposite of what most people usually do, which is to immediately notice another person's shortcomings and ignore, ignore his strong points, right? Now, of course, this not only applies to individuals, but to groups as well. It, let's say I'm someone who, uh, because of the history of Christian anti-Semitism towards Jews, I hate Christianity, right? And so I point out all the worst things about Christianity and none of the great things about it, right? Or I experienced um, uh, brutality from Muslims as, as a Spartac Jew growing up in Arab countries. And so I think Muslims are really brutal people and Islam is a corrupt religion. And I point out all the horrible things Muslims have done throughout history, but I don't point to the beautiful things, right? And so, um, or like, I look at the Haredi world, the ultra-Orthodox world, and I say, oh, they don't believe in democracy. They don't join the army. They won't talk to reformed Jews. They're fundamentalists. But then I don't point to all the chesed. They do all the Torah learning. They do all the good things they do, right? And so um, what does it mean to only stack up the negative of someone and not stack up the positive? And unfortunately, we are trained by the media and by our partisan politics that if someone on the other party we dislike, we are always... Um, judging their, their motives, right? Oh, in that party, they're all about money. It's all about ego and power. But the people on my side, these people really believe in justice. These people are really fighting for truth, right? Like politicians makeup is fundamentally different, you know, based on where they stand, right? And so uh, it's a, uh, it's a very, uh, it's a very uh, challenging situation. 
This idea of judging others favorably has precedent in the Mishnaic tractate of Pirkei Avot. Here's what it says in Avos, Yehoshua ben Prachia says, establish a rabbi for yourself, acquire a friend, and judge every person favorably. Now, I would love to hear it in our commentary section today. What do those three have anything to do with each other? Make yourself a rabbi. Like, you shouldn't be so arrogant that you don't need a teacher. Everyone needs a teacher, needs a mentor, needs a guide. You're going to just call the shots yourself? No, nobody uh, nobody you use as a sounding board? So establish a teacher. Acquire a friend, because some things are going to be better to go to a friend than to a teacher or a mentor. There's different roles. And then judge everyone favorably. What does that have to do anything with it? I'm not going to answer that. Maybe you'll have some ideas. The Rambam Maimonides comments here on Pirkei Avot, judge every person favorably. This refers to someone whom you do not know and therefore can't tell if they're a tzaddik or a rasha. Is this a righteous person or an evil person? And so you don't know who they are, and so judge them favorably. In such a case, if you see them doing something or saying something that could be interpreted in two ways, one good and one bad, you should give them the benefit of the doubt and assume the action was good. This approach is praiseworthy. The Rambam is addressing three categories. Someone we know to be righteous, the tzaddik. We, we should view their deeds positively. Someone we know to be wicked. We should obviously view their deeds skeptically and, super, and suspiciously. But when it comes to the third category, someone we don't know, that is where we need to make this leap toward Don Lechovskut, benefit of the doubt. So again, the Rambam says three categories. The tzaddik, the righteous one, of course, judge them favorably. The Russia, the, the one who we know is a wicked person, of course, you should be suspicious. But the one we don't know, we don't exactly know where they stand or who they are, judge them favorably. That's where it comes into play. On the other hand, we have another teaching from Pirkei Avot on this matter. It says in Pirkei Avot, do not judge your fellow until you have reached their place. Oh, don't judge your fellow until you've reached your place. Very interesting. So we just saw judge another person favorably. And now we see don't judge them at all because they're in a very different life situation than you, right? A different gender, different race, different sexual orientation, a different socioeconomic status a different religious orientation, a different DNA, different memories, different traumas, different glories. You are different people. How can you judge them? This source does not seem to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Rather, we are not positioned to be judgmental at all, since everyone is different, in a different place, at a different time, with different genes, a different background, in a unique scenario. A man and a woman cannot judge each other. A white person and a black person cannot judge each other. A child and an adult cannot judge each other. A rich person and a poor person can't judge each other. Any one person cannot judge anyone else. Like, what about justice? Human perspectives and experiences are so radically diverse that we might never be able to fully understand one another and therefore should try to refrain from judging each other. Ravavadia of Bartanura limits this to specific challenges. The Bartonura says, if you see someone else fail a challenge, do not judge them until you have undergone the same challenge and overcome it.
Rabbi Yehoshua Leib Diskin offers a brilliant psychological insight here about how judging others favorably not only is more empathetic to others, but how it holds us accountable in our own behavior as well. Here's what Rabbi Yehoshua Leib Diskin, the Maharil Diskin writes. Consider the following, friends. A town has 10 Jewish people living in it. If one person commits a transgression, he breaks down the fence of embarrassment, which had prevented people from sinning until now. If a second person sins, he does not need to break this barrier. He does not need as much bra brazenness because the second person is only sinning in front of eight others. And he has the other, the other sinner as his accomplice. If a third person sins, he requires even less brazenness. Following this principle, the fifth person does not need any brazenness at all. Rabbi Yehoshua Leib Diskin, the Maharal Diskin, is dealing with group dynamics and the social psychology around, around um, how we understand what is socially acceptable. Think about it. Imagine if there were people at a protest and uh, no one is violent at this protest. And all of a sudden the first punch is thrown, the first shot is fired, the first glass is broken, and then all hell breaks loose. And so this of course is a very common thing or think of a classroom with children, everyone is calm and well-behaved and one child starts to uh, 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 disobey the, the, the norms and then you see trickle effect. In telling us to judge every person favorably. The sages are giving us wise advice, he says. This advice is in order that we should not break down the internal barriers of embarrassment that holds us back from transgression. How so? When we view every person as being righteous, then we will hold ourselves back from transgressing since we will think that no one else is transgressing, so how could we be the first? However, when one sees the negative in every person, then he's likely to stumble, since he will think others are transgressing, and therefore it becomes more acceptable in his mind to transgress. All right, let's take an obvious, uh, some obvious scenarios here. Um, you, know, you know, in Judaism, we talk about dina demalchuta dina, following the law of the land, but then we also have a, a, a competing value called minhagamakom, do the custom of your area, right? So what happens if the custom is more strict than the law and you follow the custom? What happens if the custom is less strict than the law? Let me give an example. Someone in the restaurant industry might say, it's true, by law, I got to pay minimum wage of $8, right? But everyone in the restaurant industry knows everyone's paying only $5. And so I shouldn't be the one to close my business to have to go by the letter of the law when no one's doing that. Or take another case. A teenager says, I'm going to steal some chewing gum from Target because, oh, this corporation has billions of dollars. They will have no dent in their profits if I steal some chewing gum. How, and corporations are evil anyways. I mean, they're not paying their workers properly and the billionaires are getting rich. Who cares if I steal a dollar chewing gum? A bunch of people are doing it anyways, right? Or I put my Halloween candy out and I put a sign that says, take one airhead, right? And I notice on my camera, the kid who takes three, 
And the kid doesn't say, I'm the only one doing it. Say, oh, everyone's taking three. The sign is just a suggestion, right? So he says, when we come to give the benefit of the doubt to others, that they are doing good, not bad, actually, we hold ourselves to a higher standard. Because if I think everyone's doing bad, oh, everybody's a little corrupt and selfish. Everyone's stealing from each other, right? Working less hours at the job than really you're supposed to, right? Taking a little bit more snacks over here. There's, right? I'm going to grab a little extra for me because everyone's kind of doing like that, right? Then all of a sudden, the standard, the personal moral standard falls. But if we give the benefit of that, we think, oh, everyone's acting upright. Then all of a sudden, we don't want to be the one to break through the fence. Now, for the same for Achino, there's a related but different goal here to build community. Build community. He writes, the mitzvah of judging favorably serves as a catalyst for achieving peace and friendship between people. This is not just about me being righteous to judge another favorably. It's not just interpersonal, it's collective. Therefore, the main purpose of this mitzvah is to direct communities in establishing fair judicial systems and to bring peace between them by removing the suspicion between one person and another. He's saying the downfall of society, the downfall of communities is when no one trusts each other. Everyone is, is suspicious of each other's motives, right? No one can be trusted, right? No one can be trusted around here, right? And wh where is that coming from? I mean, somebody really needs to go to a psychologist. I don't mean that critically. Somebody really needs to do their work on their past traumas if they're not able to trust anyone, if they think everyone's out there just for themselves. They, they no longer believe in altruism. Every deed is somehow philosophically and psychologically selfish, right? By judging favorably, we develop social trust, foster positivity, and build a more peaceful coexistence. Now, let's go back to the Rambam. For the Rambam, this should be a priority for a learned person who will be serving as a public model. Let's see what he says here. In the Yara Chazaka, Hilkot Deot, one of his uh, masterful works on, the, on how we should conduct ourselves ethically. The Rambam writes, a scholar should not shout like an animal when he speaks with people, neither should he raise his voice. Rather, he should speak calmly with everyone, right? He should make sure to take the initiative to greet everyone first so that he's pleasant to be around. He should judge people positively and speak favorably about others, never speaking negatively about people or gossiping, or as soon as their back is turned, you know, creating a, 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 a social dynamic where as soon as someone's back is turned, they know they're being talked about. He should love and pursue peace. In general, he should always speak words of wisdom and loving kindness. Another theological layer informs how we should treat others. The Talmud teaches, if one judges their fellow positively, they will be judged positively by the omnipresent. Right? That is to say that God will judge us based upon the way we judge others. Right? If I judge everyone suspiciously, God will judge me suspiciously. If I don't give the benefit of the doubt, God won't give the benefit of the doubt. We determine how God judges us. Now, some of you be like, oh, you just crossed the line here, Shmuley, right? Uh, you're talking about God the judge. I don't know about this idea of God the judge. Okay, so once I put this in Eastern terms, everyone loves it. Let's call it karma, right? Right. If I put negativity in the world, negativity comes back to me. If I put positivity, positivity comes back to me. When I call it karma, people love it. Ooh, Eastern, very exciting. When I call it God judging us in, in Western terminology, it feels more off-putting. I understand. I understand. Right. But in any case, this idea here that 
theologically, the rabbis are teaching, that God is going to let us lead the way. The way that we choose to build a world of trust and a benefit of the doubt is the way that God is going to um, respond to, to humanity. The way that we judge will determine how God judges us. The Baal Shem Tov takes this approach to a whole nother level. In the Bash Al HaTorah, he writes, we have a tradition that no verdict is ever pa passed on a person until he himself issues the verdict. Oh, how, how so? The person is shown someone else doing what he himself is guilty of. And his reaction to that person's flaw is what determines the judgment of his own misdeeds. Friends, this is unbelievable. What the Baal Shem Tov just said is that God, so to speak, gives us the opportunity to judge someone else in the exact same thing that we're doing wrong in our lives before we ourselves get judged, right? That each of us will be blessed or cursed with the opportunity to see someone else do it, right? We're gonna watch on the news and we're gonna, and then we're gonna make a tweet about this liar on the news. What a liar, this corrupt liar. When that morning we lied to somebody, we lied to somebody. We might've thought it was innocent, yeah, who cared? I, I told someone I was gonna be there at, at nine. I knew I wasn't gonna be there till 9.30. We might've thought it was something small about, about something we said, but nonetheless, nonetheless, we didn't live truthfully. And I was given the opportunity then in front on my Twitter feed to see someone else lying and determine, determine if I was going to call it out or not. And once I did, now it comes back to me. It comes back to me. And that's what the, our spiritual tradition is doing. Our spiritual tradition is slightly less interested in the ethics of others. It's more interested in returning those ethical mandates back upon ourselves, right? It's very easy to be a, a self-righteous activist where all you're fighting all the evil out there and yet holding oneself accountable, where, where does that take place? And so for the Baal Shem Tov, every moment and activity, as well as its interpretation, is about others and us. It is all intertwined. Everything comes back to our interpretation and to our personal reality, i.e. the way we judge external events affects the internal events that occur to us. For Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, the Ramak, this is less about self-interest and self-protection. Rather, it's about divine emulation. God restricts harsh judgment, and so should we also. God is merciful, and so should we be too. It's less, I should give others the benefit of the doubt, because I want God to give me the benefit of the doubt. Okay, that's fine. But he says, no, no, this is not about self-interest. Like we, like if we want to measure success in our life theologically, one way to do that might be, did I become godlike? Did I do the godly in, in, in each day of my life, right? Not because I wanted some reward or to avoid a punishment, because that's my life pursuit. And each day I measure the success of that life pursuit. Did I achieve this? And did I set measures into, in place in my life? to actually hold myself accountable each day to say, am I living by these holy and just and ethical goals that I'm striving for myself? Okay, so all of a sudden I want to lose 10 pounds. And so I measure the 10 pounds. All of a sudden I want to make $10,000. So I measure the $10,000, but I want to grow spiritually and ethically. And I haven't put any measures of success in place, quantitatively or qualitatively, the most important pursuit in our life 
to, to live godly, to be kind and compassionate. And I have no ways of holding myself accountable, like losing 10 pounds or making $10,000, right? So friends, a very strong case can be made for not being judgmental. Not being judgmental. Clearly, it is an important spiritual way to live. On the other hand, as we saw, we are called upon to be advocates for justice, to be discerning between good and evil, and to speak out against evil and never to be silent. We are to learn how to identify the righteous from the wicked, and we are bidden to associate with the righteous and to distance ourselves from the wicked when possible. We are to prevent moral boundaries from being crossed and to speak out to advocate for the downtrodden. We must assess and judge, indeed judge fairly, but also critically. Only if we can judge injustice done by others and learn from it, can we be aware of what we must guard ourselves from. So how do we, to conclude, how do we hold the spiritual consciousness of being non-judgmental alongside a social justice consciousness of being a public ambassador for what is just and to provide a public critique of what is unjust? The answer to this seeming paradox is that we must slow down and not bandwagon on rapid social shaming and jump on campaigns without facts. It means we must not equate not liking someone with their being evil. It means that we cannot and must not confuse ideological diversity with stark, stark, stark categorization of people as good or evil. Perhaps we can be suspicious of those whose attitudes and actions harm others, but at the same time, we must try to give the benefit of the doubt to everyone who deserves it. And friends, there's a lot at stake here. How we are to judge others, others fairly, fairly, our own spiritual health, the way we ourselves will be judged, an assessment of our own defense mechanisms, and how we can sustain communities and society at large. This intellectual and spiritual work is some of the most challenging, yet most elevating we will encounter. We must make it our own endeavor and we must rise to the occasion. Okay, friends, I would love to hear from you, judging favorably versus judging for justice. Let's hear from you. Yes, Michael. In judging and coming up with the standards of judgment, I, I sometimes feel that you're not making a value judgment on this, but again, with the fences of the ultra-Orthodox, that, you know, are they separating the secular, you know, uh, are they considering other um, followers, strict followers of the Torah more righteous? So they set different standards and how they judge other Jews and how they judge not, I mean, judgment, I mean, that tends to be relativistic instead of uh, and so, but the people you were quoting obviously were people who studied Torah and came up with their their interpretation. So I wonder how this. But if it's not judgmental, I mean, why why do they not participate in the wider Jewish community, for example? Okay, that is a great um, that is a great question. 
Um, so let, let me take both pieces of that question because there really is a lot there. Um, and, and, the, and part of it is a, is a departure, but that's okay. Departures are also great. But first, so let's go to the second part first. And the second part is why do ultra-Orthodox Jews not participate in um, the broader Jewish community communal discourse? If you saw the news this morning, I mean, it didn't have to be this morning, you could have followed it for months. Um, there is a rabbi in um, Israel named Rabbi Eliezer Melamed, and he has been canceled in the settler culture and in the ultra-Orthodox culture. He is called Chardal, which means, um, uh, uh, well, it kind of means, I, I, we can call it kind of ultra-Orthodox light. But what it really means is you are Zionist, you are a, a, basically a settler type that is also ultra-Orthodox. Ultra and so the main ultra-Orthodox are not Zionists in the classical sense of what Zionist is. This is a, a so he has been canceled even though he is a, very much a part of that world. He's been canceled by many because he spoke to reform Jews, right? Haredi Dati Lumi. Thank you, thank you. Chardal, yeah, thank you, uh, Lauren. Um, and, um, and so, um, what are they uh, upset about or afraid of? Um, well, they are opposed to validation. They feel if we talk to those leaders or people, we will validate them as authentic Judaism and lead people astray. And so we must demonstrate that they are not, don't in any way represent valid Judaism and distance ourselves from them. Um, now, even the groups that we might think of as more inclusive also do that. Take, for example, Chabad. Chabad is more inclusive. Everyone's welcome to come into our Chabad house and participate however you want. But a Chabad rabbi, as a rule, will not sit on a rabbinic panel with a reformer conservative rabbi, because by sitting on that panel, they will be validating them. And that would be a, bit a problem. And so they will go out to bring people closer to their own path but they will not validate. And so, so that's the first thing to say there, um, this process of validation. Um, the second is for some of them, um, simply not viewing, forget even authentic Judaism, not viewing the others as Jews at all. Um, and so that is kind of another layer uh, to, what's, to what's happening over there. Um, but I think for another camp, it is not so different. It's actually not so intentional it's more like groups naturally bond with people in their groups, right? Um, black people oftentimes want to be friends with black people, right? And um, uh, secular Jews oftentimes want to be friends with secular Jews. And people from India uh, who live in America also want to be friends with Indian Americans. People like to associate and build community around people similar to themselves. So for some, it's actually not judgmental. Um, they're not intentionally pushing around. They say, I don't even know who you are. I don't even know what you're doing. I live in my community. I'm not participating in whatever you're doing over there. I'm just, okay, so that's the first thing. Now, the second thing to your point is they actually have created in modernity, the ultra-Orthodox community, some different categories on how to understand the motives of others. It used to be, if you left what they understood to be their community, you're a hater. You understand that there's a God and there's a true Torah and you hate them and reject them, right? And then all of a sudden that, that Orthodox world said, actually, wait a minute. Some people are not in the ultra-Orthodox world, but they don't hate it. They just don't know anything. 
And so they created a category called Tinuk Shanishba, which means a child who is kidnapped at birth. Now, this is this is this this may it, <laughs> the result of this category is positive, but the process is offensive. So basically, what it means is if you're not ultra orthodox, we don't have to hate you and push you away. You were cat kidnapped by your non-Orthodox parents, and they raised you, deceiving you to know nothing about God and Torah. And so we can be gentle with this child because they, they don't hate God and Torah. They were just kidnapped in some weird assimilated culture. And so now we don't have to shun that kid. Let's go embrace that kid and bring them closer, right, in some sense. And so that's a move they made that basically changes the motives of people who are outside of orthodoxy to no longer be haters, but to be people who have kind of been led astray. That still comes across as very different from what you've been presenting to us today about how you respect, how you see the others, how you try and understand them. It's still very counter to that. To, to that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you are you are exact. You are totally right. And so I think that I think the Haredi world here, I'll be a little judgmental. The Haredi world is better than the non Haredi world interpersonally on this and worse on the collective level. What I mean by that, and push back if you disagree, on the interpersonal level in their community, they are so gentle with each other in so many ways on how they view their neighbors and their community. Of course, there's many exceptions, many exceptions, but this is a value they talk about all the time. But on a collective level, if you are outside of their group, they will be extremely judgmental of people outside of their group. Who are the Arabs? Who are the secular Israelis? Who are the other Hasidic groups outside my own group? And so once again, we see some people are, are, might find it easier to be less judgmental on an impersonal level, interpersonal level, and less so on a collective level, and some the opposite. I know some people who are like, oh, people of another religion, I love them all. Everybody's pursuing truth. But when it comes close to home, they're very judgmental of their spouse or of, of their neighbor or of their child. And so, oh, other faiths, oh, we love them all, they're all true, right? But then at home, uh, everything is suspect. And so it's all very complicated. We all have our blind spots and the Haredi world certainly does as well. So Michael, I think you're right. And, and to be sure, like there, there's no love for the Haredi world outside the Haredi community. Um, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the broader Jewish world, not to mention uh, beyond, you know, views these people as kind of, you know, um, fundamentalist robots who can't be trusted. So, yeah, someone else. Thank you, Michael. Someone else. Yeah. Well, there I am. Um, this is one of the most important topics I think you brought up, although they're all important. But, but a few things. One, definitely a loss in... Um, in a belief in society, a loss in a belief in, in you know, the, the, this new paranoia that the government's out to get you, this new paranoia of not trusting the other, the other has malice towards you, is so destructive to society. And it's just, you know, I don't know how you hold it together. On a more individual level, certainly like I find working on Musar, trying to be less judgmental is really hard. I guess it comes into the midah of equanimity to some extent, 
but it's really, really hard. We're, we're brought up in a certain way, not to trust others, not to trust. Well, I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. So of course I don't always give the benefit of the doubt to others because, you know, because of my father's experiences. And I think it's very common among my generation, but it's, it's really something to really work on. And it's really hard to work on is to look at others with compassion and fairness and not judge, jump to a judgment. That's all I have to say. Yeah, you know, thank you, Lauren. And I, and, and I want to invite everyone to engage a spiritual practice. And now I, I don't think many of you are going to do this, but even if you just, just um, uh, experiment in the smallest way, carry a little notepad or whatever you want to use. When you're just um, walking around the, the street, let's say you're in a store and just do it for a few minutes. When you're passing someone, write down the first few things you happen to notice, you know, um, about the person, the way that because of their age, because of their beauty, perceived beauty, because of their race, their gender, like what assumptions do we make about them, right? And this is a very heavy way to walk in the world. We're, it's like, we're so stiff, we're so tense. We're like, everyone we see, we have these kind of assumptions and judgments about who they are and what they're doing. And even when it goes beyond strangers, friends, I really think this is not only an ethical uh, pursuit we're, we're dealing with here. This is a pathway to happiness. I think that one of the greatest factors of the breakdown of relationships, whether they are workplace relationships, whether they are romantic relationships, familial, social, whatever the case is, is when we get to the point with them that we more distrust their motives than trust, right? So, so uh, you know, the dishes didn't get put away or the job, the task didn't get done. And we say, oh, they're lazy or they're trying to hurt me or they wanted to do this and do that as opposed to actually like, oh, they must be so tired. Oh, they must be overworked. They must, right? And so um, that's very hard. That's very hard to, to achieve that. And yet how much happier we can be, you know, walking a little lighter in the world and being a little more gentle with others and cultivating that gentle culture for ourselves as well. And so, yeah, Lauren, I think we need that spiritual work to do that. It is so hard. And those of us like yourself who have inherited layers of trauma, um, will find it so much more difficult uh, to do that, um, uh, to do that, given that almost in our DNA is distrust, is distrust. And I, and I actually do want to say in our, in our DNA is distrust, because according to evolutionary psychology, we will survive better if we distrust, right? We need to distrust this neighboring tribe. We need to distrust this foreign face, right? Because if I don't distrust them, I'm not going to arm myself and protect myself to pre prepare for defense. And so I've always got to be in fighting mode. I've always got to be in fighting mode, judging at any moment is the person going to pounce on me, right? And wow, is that a hard way to live? Hi, Steve. Hi, hi. Um kind of apropos to what you are talking about. Years ago when I worked for a brokerage firm, th there were some uh, sexual transgressions 
we had to hire McKinsey to teach us how to be civil to each other. So they brought a bunch of us together, maybe 100 or 200 employees, and they gave us a little quiz in the beginning uh, or, or a little test. And they said, think of any ethnicity, religion, uh, grouping that you can think of, and then write down the first three characteristics that that you perceive as as unique to that group. And the guy who was handling the uh, seminar collected all of the answers, and he said, "I will tell you before reading these answers exactly what trend there is." Most of the responses, most of the three responses will be negative. So he took out one for Italian, one for Jew, one for Black, one for Caucasian. Every single one, the first three were negative. And it kind of is reflecting what you just said about punching and fighting. And it, it's just sort of a variant memory and, and really nothing astounding that people don't know already. But one other thing, um, how we react to people is often unique to that circumstance. I grew up in a very, very uh, racist, anti-Semitic city, uh, except for our three square blocks, which, I, which, which made me think that everybody in the world was Jewish. And I didn't know until after I, I went to uh, high school that, that people weren't. And um, all of a sudden, uh, I have forgotten what I'm talking about. Uh, I Oh, th this is what I'm talking about. Except for one thing, everybody stayed separate. And that was the football team. When the Baltimore Colts were playing a game, it didn't matter who uh, was black, who was white, who was Jewish, who was not Jewish. When the Colts won, everybody hugged each other. You would never see a black person or a white person hugging someone of the opposite race outside of that stadium in Baltimore, but you would see everybody being brothers and sisters in that specific environment. And that's Sorry for taking up so much time. That's all I have to say. Thank you, Steve. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Very fascinating. I, I, I want to hear more about that. Okay, friends, who else wants to jump in uh, before we conclude shortly? Who do we not hear from? Eric, Rabbi Lerner, Scott, Yehuda? I see Scott typing on the side. Does establish a rabbi for yourself mean anyone can be a rabbi if we are open to their perspective and experience? Well, I think uh, yes and no. I think the rabbis in Pirkei Avot, when they speak about a rabbi, mean specifically one who passed through these tests and process and um, of smicha. And that is a unique role. But I think that beyond the literal words they're teaching, I do think they mean establish for yourself a teacher or a mentor. And those can come in many forms. 
Um, and so I, the, the, the idea of teacher or mentor or guide they understood was rabbi, but there can be other forms of that today, of course. And so, um, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, and so now I see your broader point. Um, uh, that we are actually able to expand who we can learn from once we are more less judgy and more open to learning from people's experiences. And so if I understand what you're saying here, Scott, the, the third part of that Mishnah of judge others favorably actually helps the first two. You will be more capable of having teachers and mentors, more capable of maintaining friends if you are more open to learning. And how can you be more open to learning if you're less judgmental of, of others? Um, yes, and so, that, so that's wonderful. That's a wonderful interpretation of that Pirkei Avot. Um, and it's true that those who are so arrogant to judge others constantly and harshly are also oftentimes the arrogant ones who don't want a teacher and can't really maintain friendships because it's all about the self. It's not about others. It's not about learning or that experience. And so this is, an ex this is a, a call towards humility, a call towards learning and towards perspective. So I love that. Thank you for that. That is great. Anyone else? Um, now, I, 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 yeah, I just before Eric, one other thing I wanted to say is I do think we can take responsibility without being overly judgmental. So let me give an example. And I hope this example speaks to you. Um, someone might say, oh, the anti-vaxxers, I hate them all. I hate them all. They're, they're liars and they're ignorant and they're, they're cruel and evil. Someone else might say, I will be just as much friends with anti-vaxxers, even though I'm pro-vax, because who am I to judge them, right? They have their own set of facts and understandings. And the first we might call over-judgmental. The latter we might call relativistic. Relativistic. One is not willing to take a stand for what they believe in, in the spirit of not judging. And a middle ground could look like, I am going to create a policy as a pro-vaccine person, where I am only going to associate in person with pro with other people who also get vaccinated. And socially, I prefer to engage with people who engage in similar sets of facts uh, as me. But I don't need to judge those people. I believe they're doing what they think is right for themselves. I think they're doing what they believe is best. They're not trying to hurt themselves and other people. And so I'm gonna create a policy for myself without having to go to an emotional place of hatred or anger or of judgment towards the other. So there is a way potentially to take responsibility for what one understands to be good and true while also not raising the emotional temperature through the roof. Okay, Eric, you get the last, uh, last point here. Um, I think this has been really fascinating and I understand the idea of judging favorably for all judging all favorably. I like to know your opinion. Where have you seen where the concept of judging favorably has con where it, it serves as more as a, as a contradiction or in conflict with the idea of judging for just in the name of or for the sake of justice right great awesome yeah so i think that um 
this uh, happens in all of the social movements. All of the social movements um, construct uh, a good guy and a bad guy. And, um, and a lot of people get hurt unfairly because of this need to um, use them in this collective need for judgment. And, um, and, and, and I really feel bad for the casualties that occur there. And I'm, I'm, I'm debating in my head whether to give specific social movements and specific cases where I see it playing out all the time. Could you but, give historical ones if you don't want to talk about current ones? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, that's good. That's not fair. Um, I think it may make more safer. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's great. So um, let's look at how, um, uh, uh, man, there's so many, there's so many, and they're all so complicated. Let's look at how Russians or Soviets and Americans viewed each other over the Cold War. Um, and in a sense, one could have framed this as the battle between uh, capitalism and communism. Um, you could frame it a bunch of other ways too, of course. Uh, imperialism versus democracy. Um, and um, um, the fight for wealth or global dominance. In any case, what, what emerged as a, a fight for truth and for justice in political battles ultimately emerged into a complete distrust of populations um, and their motives uh, at play. And I'm, I'm using a, a, a more historical example because I, I think the ones are, they're, they're almost too on fire right now. Like if you look at Blue Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter, you look at court cases that are involved in, uh, in, 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 in such issues. You look at, um, you look at um, some various issues around uh, election fraud. Um, but I, so I think that we get to the point where we're gonna advocate for a global, for, a foreign policy. And then we get to the point of how do we perceive people of that population who are beyond political control? And how do we judge their intent when they're advocating for their own ideology or, or nation state in a sense? And so, um, yeah, there's really a lot more to say on this. And I think that one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up as one of the great debates is because I don't think we talk about it enough. So much of this is unconscious and it's leading to the breakdown of trust in society, the breakdown of community, breakdown of families, and a lot of internal suffering that we live, we judge ourselves so harshly, we judge others so harshly, and how do we get to a more gentle place without abandoning our pursuit of truth and justice? Let me say one other thing, and um, you can agree or disagree with this, but um, I did once hear in a class that um, one should never, if they wanna maintain their marriage, judge their spouse. Now that might seem extreme, never judge them. Like what are you talking, you know, never critique, never judge. Yes, there's a space to talk about difficult issues. Yes, there's a space to share feelings, but that the partner should never feel judged. Now that sounds like a very black and white rule, but I actually have found it to be incredibly powerful 
that as soon as one feels judged, one feels violated, um, and that trust can quickly dissipate. And so we can think about this on the societal realm, but just to take it into home, into the home front with a child or with a, a, a romantic partner, to think about like, how do I, when I notice judgment emerging in my psyche, retranslate that in my articulation to an inquiry, ask a question, oh, what, were, what are you thinking here? Or why are you doing this? As opposed to a statement of judgment or of critique. Okay, friends, I think we need to pause here. I can't wait to see you next week for our next session. Um, and our, the topic of our next session for debate number 25 is love versus love. Oh, love as an emotion versus love as a deed. Love as an emotion versus love as a deed. I can't wait to see you then. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Hope to see you at Rabbi Ed Feinstein if you can come in person this Thursday. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.